From iHeartMedia, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walczak. Welcome to our first bonus episode. As you can tell, I spent a ton of time on this project, and there are many things we just can't fit in the core show. But we want you to hear some of them to get a deeper sense of the story and the players involved. This episode begins with a phone call. Hello? Hey, uh, can I speak to Barbara, please? Speaking. That's Barbara Conti, who dated Don Johns, the missing pilot, in the early 1970s. A few years ago, her son Chris heard about my research and emailed me. He told me that his mom had something fascinating, an unpublished article written by Don Johns called A Day on the North Slope. In it, Don details a plane crash he survived in Alaska in early 1972 and the brutal conditions he encountered as he trudged through the bush looking for help. When Don vanished, Barbara gave the article to her sister, who wanted to read it. But... The sad part is, my sister was murdered at the same time. And I don't remember the day I was completely lost, you know. Her husband killed her, then he committed suicide. And her poor kids were 15 and 16. He had um, taken her down, put her in the trunk of her car. And when they got home from school, they saw something dripping from the trunk. So they ran in and got the keys and opened it up and saw their mother with her head blown off. So they, they are still traumatized by it. Barbara's sister was murdered on October 23rd, only one week after Don disappeared. After the murder, Barbara found this article, A Day on the North Slope, laying in her sister's den. Here it is, voiced by Chandler Mays. To the southeast, Alaska's Brooks Range is silhouetted in pink. 7.45 a.m., February 12, 1972. I'm planning a 300-mile flight to Fairbanks in my Cessna 185 for a load of supplies. I fly support for an oil exploration camp. The thermometer is negative 54 degrees Fahrenheit. Pre-flight the aircraft, it has been heated all night with a flameless catalytic heater. Full oil drains sumps. Everything brittle and vulnerable to breakage. Be careful, ever so careful, I remind myself. Depressed starter. A feeble click-click from the starter solenoid. Battery frozen. I try hand-propping it. After yanking five minutes, I give that up. Finally locate a 100-pound Caterpillar battery and a pair of jumper cables. The engine starts. Disconnect the Caterpillar battery, let the aircraft idle five minutes while they return battery to Caterpillar. Hurry back to the aircraft. Whack the skis to break them loose. Mount the cockpit forward on the throttle. Things don't sound all that healthy. What does it, negative 54 degrees Fahrenheit? The aircraft rumbles down the side of the hill. Airborne and climbing slowly. Cockpit fills with frost. Left wing, super heavy. I'd parked on a hill last night. As a result, fuel flowed to the downhill tank. Just the happy bullshit of an Arctic day. Ice crystals fill the cabin. Windshield frosted. I fly by instruments. In a couple of minutes, condensation from my breath diminishes with the warming by the cockpit heater. Soon, I'll be up in an inversion layer and warm. Suddenly, the propeller overspeeds. 
the GD non-congealing cooler has frozen and thereby prevented oil from coursing through the engine's innards, a condition I've experienced many times. Mother! Throttle back to permit the oil cooler to warm up. Slow the airspeed in order to keep prop within sight of the red line. Remedies that have worked in the past. I could do a doctorate on non-congealing oil coolers that congeal. However, airmen are vain buggers, ad forever occupied with digging up excuses. Basically, I fucked up. By letting the engine idle too long, oil under too little pressure got mushy, clogged the oil cooler and its supply lines. In short order, oil remaining in the engine core overheated and thinned to the viscosity of water. In turn, the propeller governor, which boosts normal oil pressure, couldn't make two with water like oil, so it copped out on its job. Yes, the prop oversped because an Arctic-wise pilot screwed up. Should have put more masking tape over the cooler. Glance at the oil temperature. JC, far above the red line, means engine oil is red hot. A furtive look at the oil pressure gauge. Zero. The engine sputters and begins to knock. What does an old pro do when he encounters a tight situation? Shit his pants. Pray tell what else. Unfortunately, it's a diversion all too quickly completed. If impending catastrophe is kept too long in a beviance, one is better off with another diversion. I am already flying low and slow. Too little of everything for a turn back towards camp. Ahead and to the left, I see the inactivic river. In the real world, it would be called a frozen creek. I make the mile or so to the river when boom, the engine blows. Blow it does. Fire and smoke up through the oil filter access door. Oil spurting out the front air intakes. Now what? Best shot already fired. As it is, it will take a week of warm wind to dry the seats. I point the nose down and look ahead for a landing place. Thank God this whore is on skis. A moment later, goddamn riverbed is all rocks and ice ridges. A bum day to die. Happy fiasco, DJ. There is no question about landing. It is reduced to a simple puzzle. Will I walk away with my, one, ass intact, two, airplane splattered? I slow airspeed more, but she won't fly. The combined result of no power and a hefty load of ice brought in yesterday from Port Barrow. Jerk on first notch of flaps. Almost immediately, I'm forced to grab another notch. Over one embankment, across the serpentine leg of the frozen river, flashing perpendicular in front of me. Now very low and aiming to center punch the three-foot-high embankment on the river's far side. Third and last notch of flaps. Up like a balloon on a false gust. A short stretch of rock-strewn gravel bar. Thud. Hit. Bounce. Sliding. Fuel off. Switch off. Stop. I can hear the snap, crackle, and pop of a well-done engine. Smoke gushing into the cockpit. One good sign, the fire blew itself out. I fumble with the seatbelt, open the door, jump out. Balls. Gotta be bum karma. Plane undamaged, except left ski has a grapefruit-sized hole gouged in it. The tire above the hole is punctured. I reach in the air intake to touch the engine. My hand drags out a jagged chunk of metal about the size of a Campbell soup can. It is part of the crankcase. What do you think you are, DJ? A junk collector? I put it back. It is 0800. I'm at a latitude 69 degrees north or thereabouts, maybe seven to eight miles from a tiny camp in which there are four other men who, by the way, pay this birdman to be their lifeline. I'm 60 miles or so north of a small Eskimo settlement, 100 miles or more to the other nearest white man. 
it is more than 50 degrees below. So, stay and pray to the east, burn the aircraft, or walk out. On with blue insulated survival suit. Actually, an adopted snowmobile's coverall. Tighten the laces on my mucklucks, pull on a face mask, march, man. A thought. Many years have I spent flying the Arctic. Unfortunately, I've been a-walking only twice, but both times in these blue coveralls. The first time after a double-engine failure in a sky van 150 miles south of here in October 1970. Nearly lost a frostbitten foot to a surgeon's blade. Baby, better change your lifestyle. Maybe it is the blue coveralls. I decide to trash them if I get out. Trudging north, down the Inactivic River, I break through a lightly bridged crevice and stick my right muckluck into the slowly flowing black water beneath. Screw you. I'll take my stroll on the bank. Ahead and on the right side of the river, about five miles, is, I'm certain, rooftop ridge. Not much of a mountain, maybe 2,400 feet, but in this flat, frightening, forlorn, fricking, frozen desert, it passes. I know our camp is opposite rooftop ridge, on the west side of the Inactivic River, just a hair from the river. Muckluck before muckluck before muckluck. Christ, what a bummer. In any event, it could be worse. Yeah, asshole, it could be a lot better. Like you could have been at 12,000 feet over the Brooks Range, cockpit all cozy, and 100 miles closer to town by now. Not to mention $4,000 less worse off. How would a Stoic's philosophy of never look back fit out here? Personally, I'll hang on to my regrets. At 0900, the distinctive sound of our Nodwell snow tractor fractures the Arctic morning. At first, the sound appears from the west. There is a west wind of three to four knots. I remove my face mask to uncover my ears. Now the sound seems from the north. As suddenly as it started, the sound of the revving engine stops. I strain my ears, but all I can hear, off on the river three quarters of a mile to my right, is the bank, pop crack of river ice. I recognize this as the sound of overflow. The Arctic phenomena, whereby a river freezes to the bottom of the riverbed in some constricted spot, causing a reservoir of deep water to swell upstream. When the pressure gets strong enough, it splinters four to six feet of surface ice, flooding it with gushing water from beneath. Sometimes the new water is three feet thick. The new surface water itself quickly freezes, but while doing so, it makes a lot of ice fog. It is exceedingly dangerous to attempt a landing or try to walk on overflow. Overflow conditions happen most readily when temperatures take a sudden dive or when cold persists. This morning, the river begins to fog due to open water flooding the surface. Sure as hell isn't getting any warmer. I decide to continue north, parallel to the river, about a half mile from the riverbank. Thank the Virgin for abundant warm clothes this time. Following my 1970 crash, I damn near died of cold and exhaustion. For leg gear, I'm wearing long johns under a pair of brown checkered street trousers. Over it all, my blue insulated snowmobile coveralls. For the torso, I wear a head turtleneck undershirt. My head makes luxurious skis, remember? Austrian ski sweater, down vest, and my new orange down ski parka. Damn it, dude. Ever consider becoming a ski bum and really saying screw airplanes forever? On my feet, I'm wearing Canadian Army Arctic mucklucks with natural rubber soles with canvas uppers. No cold fracturing, quote, rubberized plastics like last time. The whole works is called foot packs, the best going. My feet are loose and warm, but they will still freeze if I sidewash for the night. What a funny word. It means going native in the open. A poor man's bivouac. Kick a trench in the crust and try to keep breathing. <sighs> the idea causes a sharp pain in the ass. On my head, I'm wearing my customized stocking cap slash face mask, purchased and hacked up only day before yesterday in Fairbanks. What a blast that was. I looked all over town for a lightweight, long stocking cap with mouth and eye holes. No luck. 
Finally, I purchased a stock model, grabbed a pair of scissors, snipped holes in the correct locations, and watched my brainchild unravel in my hands. In desperation, I fetched a needle and thread and spent half an hour making stop stitches. I am glad such a fine job had been done. DJ, maybe you would make someone a good wife? Go slow. Better extract your ass from this predicament before considering marriage. Speaking of ass, I forthright reached two conclusions. One, my sexuality had been dealt a stunning blow when I shit my trousers two hours ago. Two, my ass and chin are the only parts of me that are cold. Outrageous coincidence. On my hands, I have jumbo leather mittens with woolen liners. 10 a.m. Where in the hell am I? In answer, the Inactivic River looses a volley of snaps like a popcorn machine. Two hours you've been walking. That is eight to 10 miles. I stop to listen again. Where did the Nodwell tractor sound go? Just like these dudes to shut the engine off. No consideration for pilots. Ahead on the right riverbank, about three miles, is Rooftop Ridge. I think. If it was five miles away before, and you've just walked eight miles, and it is still three miles away, your arithmetic bears watching. With the mere utterance of bear comes to reality. There is a goddamn grizzly ahead and to the right. JC, this is all I need. A feeble-minded bear that doesn't have sense enough to hibernate. He should run from me and I from him, but I'm asshole deep in snow and can't run, and he is obviously a muck if he's out here in midwinter. To be on the safe side, I take a wide detour. When about 200 yards on his downwind side, an old hunting trick, I see that he is a large wind-exposed rock. Nonetheless, I'm fresh out of faith. Number one, I'm gravely concerned over the remains of a $4,000 engine, now worth about $100. Arctic depreciation just to rattle my cage. I am lost, or nearly so. Frightened, on the verge of panic. Like it will be dark again in five hours. Then what? Behind me, I can see my lonely trail. It meanders south from where I stand, strewn with little zigs and zags where I've walked with head down. It disappears over the horizon. The breeze is stiffening. Ice fog obscures more of the river. The whole scene looks like a science fiction nightmare. I make up my mind to walk another hour in the northerly direction. That will put me three hours back to the aircraft if a storm comes up. If a really big blow starts, I've got big problems. There is not a tree, bush, or stump within a hundred miles. The only chance would be to make a hasty retreat toward the aircraft and hope to make it. Even if I got back to the aircraft, it would be a gruesome ordeal to survive. I've seen storms last a week with winds over 50 knots. At 50 below, bullshit. they start looking for me. I imagine in two to three days. There isn't that many in our breed that will venture a search on the North Slope. Maybe a few of the old pros from the interior airways, like Bob Jacobs, or a couple of the fellows hired by the oil companies, like Jack Spurgeon of Alaska Pipeline, who found me last time. Definitely not CAP or FAA. Last time I crashed, I damn near died before anybody considered looking. All around me are teeny rolling hills, tops shrouded in fog. The effect is to make pipsqueak mounds appear as mountains. Of course, there are no mountains on the north slope, all of which makes me less and less sure of where I am. It isn't the first time I thought I was in Siberia. I can still see rooftop ridge, but in the bleak Arctic morning, it looks fuzzy. Too far away. Where are all the good Dunaraks this morning? Dunaraks are old Eskimo spirits. They may be good Dunaraks or bad Dunaraks. 
Dunarax may dwell in specific large mountains, rivers, trees, etc. I hasten my march, only to work up a sweat across my shoulders and the back of my neck. I open the front of my parka and coveralls. The faster pack still makes me sweat. Sweat is a goddamn no-no in the Arctic. It leads to deep chills and freeze-dried corpses. If consistent, it would make a good walking. Instead, I fall through the crust and scrape my shins once in about every 25 yards. The anticipation of falling through is innervating. Reminds me of waiting for a jack-in-the-box. My mucklucks make a crisp, thump-creak sound, like walking on a wrinkled drum. The wind bites my eyes. They water. The water freezes into instant icicles. Every five minutes, I take a glove off and flick the accumulated ice from my eyelashes. Otherwise, all the mirages are blurry. Who needs blurry mirages at a time like this? If I look down my nose inside the face mask, I can see icicles hanging a half inch from my nostrils. Great day for a hike. From time to time, my chin freezes. I dig in a pocket and come up with a knitted earband. More romantically, a Norwegian jockstrap. This goes around my lower face. That cures the chin problem. I am afraid not soon enough. My chin is numb and feels brittle. My windward ear, the left prick, is near frostbite. Fifteen years ago, both ears were severely frostbitten. They have always been more vulnerable to freezing since. Is it only negative 54 degrees Fahrenheit? The only sign of life is an occasional limbing trail. Imagine those little mothers out here. And a fox track. All tracks are blown in, which means a week or so old. Not a bird, not another living thing. Save one lonesome aviator flapping his wings in a vacuum. An endless, worthless pearl. This the fat cat conservationists of California want to save. Any ecological accident, even oil spill, would be a step forward. No doubt about it, I'm lost. Visibility is getting hazier. My ass is in a sling if I don't find camp. In fact, if I don't get back to camp, some prick somewhere will notify the FAA. Tis little better than not being found at all. Not that they would come looking, no. They would get lost and blame the airplane manufacturer. But they would lounge around and wait for someone to find me, then slap a big violation against me. For assuredly, as Allah did his own thing, I've violated some law. The FAA operates under the philosophy that the only legal airplane is a parked airplane. So when accidents do happen, never mind the missing wing or faulty engineering, there is a violated rule. Thus the FAA motto, if the pilot hadn't taken off, the accident wouldn't have happened. Listen, all I hear is the incessant bang from the distant river ice. My right foot is beginning to blister. Good time to pee. Pause for a philosophy break. Granted, passing water is not one of life's biggies until you've taken a frightened, frozen tool, apply attention to it, and attempt to coax it over three inches of clothing. Follow me through. Remove gloves, unjam frozen parka zipper, unsnap down vest, unzip frozen coveralls, and pull-up sweater. From here, it is by braille. Unzip trousers. With right hand, fish for the little gym. Pry open long john fly and underwear pouch. Eureka! With Horace in hand, I began uncoiling. Quicker than you can blink an eye, I had the entire two inches pulled taut. Over the edge, I can just discern his frosted label. Made in Japan. Anyway, great white pilot, tinkled. I resolved to hike to the nearest knoll, maybe a mile west of the river. From that vantage point, I may see better. Referencing rooftop ridge with a primitive fix on the sun, I turned 90 degrees left from my otherwise straight north-running footprints and began to walk west. It takes balls to change course in life. Sometimes it is the only way. It is 10.45. I am frightened. Perhaps from the forced landing, more, I think, from the familiarity with the unrelenting Arctic. Less than a year ago, a scant 40 miles from where I stand, 
I collected the frozen body of my good friend George Curtis. George and I had known each other four to five years. He was the Arctic's most experienced geophysical supervisor. The night before he was killed, George and I rapped about the Arctic and its catastrophic assault on things living. The conversation ended with, George, what the hell are you still doing here? Don't you know life goes on outside while you freeze? George reminded me, and you? You made it big once. We fell asleep in side-by-side bunks. The next morning, I bade George so long and jumped into my plane. Later that day, the helicopter in which he was riding augured into Mother Earth in a whiteout. The following day, I circled the wreck while another chopper landed and confirmed the worst. The day after, I took George Curtis on his last airplane ride. Such is the Arctic. So goddamn beautiful it hurts sometimes. So brutal with such finality at others. I used to love it. To be one of its unique experts was a pride I couldn't verbalize. Ecstasy comes less frequently these days, but when it does, I think it worth the wait. I am very near where my friend Jules Thibodeau, the most illustrious pilot of the North, bit the dust of Kayak Mountain, Christmas 67 or 68. My mind rebels. To get my head straight, I start reviewing great books of courage I've read. Foremost is The Long Walk, where the mind of man overcame unbelievable hardship in Siberia. Next, I remember Papillon and his years of travail and utter isolation. If I should be totally lost out here, I resolve to use these examples for inspiration. It is now 11 o'clock. Is the whole world flat white, or do they still make trees and grass? When I get to the top of the knoll, I'll sit and rest half an hour and listen carefully for any sounds that might come drifting out of white space. At the end of half an hour, I'll retrace my steps to the aircraft. All reasoning points to the probability that I've walked past the camp and am too far north. I have walked over 15 miles before being forced down, but reasonable certainties are not enough on which to bet your life. And getting lost is an absolutely certain route to disaster in the Arctic. I am plotting due west, according to the sun, which is a whole 10 degrees above the southern horizon. My zombie-like shadow is at zenith. The Arctic day is half gone. Civilized parts of the world are contemplating spring. We're just emerging from deep winter. Not long ago, an acquaintance asked me to teach him to fly on the north slope. Teach luck? Show a man how to do the common sense number? Demonstrate a will to survive? Drill him on how to fly lot with confidence? Instruct him on how to fly by the seat of his pants on instruments? Tell him about Darwin's survival of the fittest? The blind teach the blind? He must have been shitting me. I glance to the south. JC, smoke. I start walking. Before walking five minutes, I suddenly catch sight of the camp. Not at the smoke, but off to the west. Is ecstatic the correct word? As it turned out, the smoke isn't smoke, but sunlight making a mirage on the ridge. Remind you of the bear that wasn't? Had it not been for the mirage, I would not have found the camp. Whatever, the camp isn't an illusion. It is only about two miles away. As suspected, I had walked past the camp on the first try. More or less by accident, I've stumbled back to it. The final two miles is at a bouncy clip. It is noon, I have walked 18 to 20 miles. As I march into camp, Don Callahan, the party chief exclaims, what the hell? Don't give me any bullshit. Just take a picture before I pull this face mask off. Part of my chin comes off with the mask. I am a believer. Mirages are good Dunaraks. Okay, so this article obviously shows a few things. First, Don had a sarcastic, sometimes profane sense of humor. Second, even though I've harped on his 17,000 hours of flight time and extensive experience piloting planes in interior Alaska, he sometimes made mistakes. This was one, as he himself admitted. Another occurred six years prior, in October 1966, 
when he embarked on a nonstop 50-hour record-breaking flight from Miami to Fairbanks in a small plane, a Piper Cherokee. He didn't get far. Shortly after takeoff, he was forced to crash land on a four-lane highway right outside Miami. The FAA quickly discovered that he had overloaded the plane by 700 pounds and temporarily revoked his license. If he had made it, his ex-wife Willie told me, he would be the hero. Because he didn't make it, he was the villain. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's 1-833-642-8477. Again, 1-833-642-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Special thanks to Chris and Barbara Conti. And thank you to Chandler Mays, who voiced Don Johns. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.